name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. A certain little girl was asked her name. When she was asked her name, she would reply, I'm Mr. Sugar Brown's daughter. And her mother told her that wasn't right, that she should say, I'm Jane Sugar Brown. One day, the pastor caught her in Sunday school, and he said, aren't you Mr. Sugar Brown's daughter? To which the little girl replied, I thought so. I thought I was, but my mom says I'm not. (laughs) That's a funny quip about how important it is to understand our full identity. She is Mr. Sugar Brown's daughter, but she's also Jane Sugar Brown. Identity answers the question of who I am. Identity is so important because it becomes the foundation for our lives. The foundation on which I build my life is my identity, who I am. My sense, my sense of worth comes from my identity. My acceptance, my well-being comes from my sense of identity. And so in the verses that we have in front of us this morning, I'm really convinced that Peter wants to give his readers a full understanding of what and who their identity is in the Lord Jesus. And so I'm hoping this morning that you and I, by extension, as we listen to Peter's words, will know our identity and we will build our lives upon this identity. Now, our passage in Peter, this is a turning point in that letter that he's written. Up to this point, Peter began and he said, hey, I I want to assure you that we have this hope, this living hope, this really great confidence that one day God is going to bless us at the coming of Jesus and we're going to be resurrected from the dead. In verse 13, he says, because that's true, therefore we ought to do these things. You remember, I kind of couched them as resolutions. These are some things that we should be resolved to do. And I said, just for your remembrance, I said that we should be ready to think, and we should be ready to think deeply, and we should be ready to think deeply about the connection of our hope in Jesus to all that happens to us in life. And then we said that we should be resolved to be obedient and faithful to Jesus. And then finally, we said we should love one another. The resolution that the resolve of our life, because Jesus is the our hope, and we have this great hope in his return, we should love each other. We should love each other profoundly, and we should love one another, as Peter said, constantly. And then I told you last week that I didn't really go far enough. And you remember, he tells us how to love constantly. And he says, put off those bad attitudes. You remember malice and deceit and hypocrisy, those five things that he mentions. And then he said, the positive is we should dive into the word of God, because as we dive into the word of God, we're, we're, we're changed so that we can love one another. So that's where we are. Peter now, I think, wants to turn his attention to some really deep truth for us, some really important truth for us. And uh, as I've told you, I mean, I don't want to build it up too much because you'll be disappointed, but I have been so encouraged this week by my time in this passage, and I'm hoping that I can pass on that encouragement to you. Maybe by the time we're finished, some of you may be smiling a little bit because you're sure not smiling this morning, all right? You have that uh, resting face, all right? 
Um, so I'm going to divide the text. It's, it's verse 4 through verse 10. I'm going to divide the text into two parts. The one we come to and then who we are in the one we come to. Who we are in the Lord Jesus. So let's dive in. The one we come to. Chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. But to the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone, and a stone to stumble over, and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. Now, some of these verses are about us, but many, if not most of the verses I just read to you are not so much about us, but they're about the one we come to. Verse 4, as you come to him, who is it that we're coming to? Well, Peter tells us here. Many metaphors have been given to us throughout the scripture about Jesus. Many metaphors to help us understand his character, his person, his work. For instance, he's called the head of the body, the church. He's our head. He's the vine, we are the branches. These are metaphors. Jesus isn't a vine. We're not literal branches. But these are metaphors. He's the vine. We're the branches. He's the shepherd, the good shepherd. We are his sheep. He is the light of the world. He's the bread that we eat. He's the water that we drink so that we thirst no more. But in this passage... In this one, Peter's going to give us a new metaphor or a different metaphor. Different metaphor and he's going to tell us that Jesus is the stone. The metaphor that he uses is that Jesus is really, a, he's not really a stone, but he's using it metaphorically. He's a stone. The question is, why would Peter use that metaphor to talk about Jesus? Well, I think it's because we find it throughout the Old Testament. That's probably why he does it. But, but I think Jesus is called a stone because of the analogy that we find throughout the scripture that God is our rock, that God is a stone. God is our, in, in the rock then is used as a metaphor for strength and stability and refuge and protection. Here's just a few verses. Here's 2 Samuel chapter 22. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. In my office is a picture that Lou and Barbara Jones gave me, gave me decades ago, I imagine. But in that picture, it's... Um, it's out in the ocean and there's this small rock and built on this rock is a lighthouse and this lighthouse is being plummeted by huge waves and there's a lighthouse tender, this small dude standing in the doorway of the lighthouse with all the water just crashing all around him but he's protected by that rock on which he's standing. Well, that's the picture that God is like that for us. You know, uh, Joe mentioned the sorrowful prayer request that I mentioned, the things that are sorrowing people. Man, listen, life's full of sorrows, isn't it? But Jesus is that refuge for us, that rock when, when everything around us is sorrowing. He, he's the one that lifts us up out of that miry clay. Psalm 71.3 says, be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me for you are my rock and my fortress. Psalm 62 verse 7 says, my honor and salvation come from the Lord. He is my mighty rock and my protection. And so P 
Peter says Jesus is our rock. And I think he's looking back at all those analogies to God being our rock, being our stone, our fortress, our refuge, our savior. Peter says Jesus is our stone. Jesus is our rock. But now what he's going to do is he's going to define this metaphor of a rock. He's going to define it down for us. And here's where I hope you get greatly encouraged because there's, there's seven things I want to show you about this stone that Peter mentioned. Actually, Peter only mentioned six. I took liberties with the last one, but I'll tell you about it when we get there. Number one, Peter says he's not just any stone. He's the living stone. Look at verse four again. He is a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. Why does Peter call Jesus a living stone? Well, there could be one of two reasons. One might be simply to say Jesus is not an inanimate stone. He's a person. Our rock is not, our rock is not doctrine. Our rock is not a place. Our rock is a person. And it could be that Peter is saying he's the living stone because he wants you to know that Jesus is a person and he's alive. All right. That could be one reason. But I think the reason is something else. I think the reason he calls Jesus the living stone is because Jesus was dead, stone dead, but now he's alive again. I think Peter is alluding to the resurrection of Jesus. He is not dead. He is alive. And so in Revelation, Jesus himself says, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and of death. I think the reference to Jesus, be encouraged by this, as a living stone is because he has been raised from the dead. And by the way, by the way, in case you wonder, our faith is not built on just some some subjective teachings of some great teacher of the past. Our faith is built on the objective reality that Jesus conquered death, that he was dead, but now he's alive, and he's alive forevermore. And because he came back to life, you and I are going to come back to life too. You and I, though they're going to lay us in the grave if Jesus tarries, one day God's going to raise me back to life. And I think that's what Peter's trying to get out right here. This, this fact that Jesus was raised from the dead attested to us by, by the, so many eyewitnesses. But Luke 24, just read you one verse. The girls go to, to, the, to the tomb and they meet, they're met by two angels. And the angel said, then as they were afraid, that's the ladies, bowed their faces to the earth. They, the angels, said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. So the one we come to, the one you've come to, the one that Peter says they've come to, he is the living stone. He's alive forevermore. Number two, in verse six, he's called the cornerstone. Read it with me. For it stands in scripture. See, I lay a, a stone in Zion, a chosen, honored cornerstone. So honor will come to you who believe. But to the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. Now, Peter is quoting in his text that we read earlier just a minute ago. He's quoting a prophecy from the Old Testament. We find it in Isaiah. Here's Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, the Lord God said, look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will, will be unshaken. And then in the psalm, similar language, Psalm 118, open the gates of the right of righteousness for me. I will enter through them and 
give thanks to the Lord. This is the Lord's gate. The righteous will enter through it. What is the Lord's gate that will enter through? Verse 21, I will give thanks to you because you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord. It is wondrous in our sight. Now, yesterday, Micah calls me, Micah Beachy calls me, and, and we have this discussion about the cornerstone. And I don't know if the discussion did anything for him, but it really helped me understand this whole thing of the cornerstone. I'm not a mason. I'm not, I'm not a builder. I'm definitely not a builder who built 2,000 years ago. But 2,000 years ago, they didn't pour cement foundations pinned by an architect and by all this fancy equipment that gives them exact elevations and level. They didn't do it that way. They did it by choosing a cornerstone, a square perfect stone that they would set as the corner and then they would pull off of that. And so the cornerstone was the most important stone in construction back then. That's not true anymore. Today, cornerstones are ornamental. We put the date when something was built on the cornerstone, but it has nothing to do actually with the construction of the building. But that was not true in this day. And so when the Bible says that Jesus is the chief cornerstone, it means he's the perfect stone that God set to build everything off of him. We are built, our lives are built off of Jesus. We take our measurements from him. We pull off of his life to make sure that our life is straight and true. The author of Hebrews wrote it like this. He, he used the metaphor of running a race, but it carries the same idea. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy has set before him, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's the same idea. Jesus is the cornerstone off of which we pull our lives and we determine what's right and what's wrong. So Jesus is the cornerstone. We said he's a living stone, a cornerstone. Number three in verses four and six, he's the chosen stone. It says in verse four, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. And then in verse six, it says, see, I lay in Zion a chosen and honored cornerstone. I've spoken about this quite frequently, but folks, I don't believe that I'm the, ch I don't believe I'm a chosen one in and of myself. I believe that God chose Jesus. Jesus is the, the chosen one. He's the chosen cornerstone. And those of us who by faith enter into him, we become by virtue of being in the chosen, we become God's chosen and God's elect. We are chosen in Christ because Christ is God's chosen stone. The Bible says before God ever laid a lick of, of creation, before he ever did anything at all, he had already predetermined that Jesus would be the chosen cornerstone of which he would build his eternal kingdom and we would get to be a part of it. And he said that in him we have been adopted. In him we have been forgiven. In him we have been raised from the dead. In him everything is in him. He's the chosen one. What task did Jesus accomplish as God's chosen one? What was he chosen to do? According to Jesus, here's what he was chosen to do. To preach the good news of the kingdom of God, Luke 4. To fulfill the law and the prophets, Matthew 5. To reveal the Father, Matthew 11. He was chosen to call sinners to repentance, Mark 2. He was chosen to proclaim freedom to the captives, give sight to the blind, and proclaim the year of God's favor, Luke 4. 
He was chosen to save the world, John 3. He was chosen to do the will of the Father, John 6. He was chosen to testify to the truth, John 18. And he was chosen to give his life as a ransom for Jimmy. And he was chosen by God to give his life as a ransom for you, for all of us, Matthew 20. Notice that he was chosen by God and honored by God. And the people who honor him, they, they receive honor. That's what Peter said. That, but, but people reject the stone. They reject the chosen stone. Verse number four, in verse seven, it says he's an honored stone. Your version may say precious stone if you're not reading from the CSB. It may say precious stone. The word actually means valued. And that's why it can be chosen. I mean, honored, precious. It, 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 the word means it has value. Jesus is this valued stone to everyone who receives him. To all of us who receive the Lord Jesus by faith. Consequently, he is of great value for us. Verse 6 and 7. For it stands in scripture. See, I lay in a stone in Zion. A chosen and honored cornerstone, a chosen and precious cornerstone, so honor will come to you who believe. To those of us that believe, listen, to those of us that believe, nothing and no one is more precious and more valued and more loved than Jesus, right? Nothing is greater, nothing is of more value to us than Jesus. He is kind and he is good and he's loving and he's right and he's strong and we value him because we value God because to value Jesus is to value God and to value God is to value Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 21, Peter says, Though through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. To put your faith and hope in Jesus is to put your faith and hope in God. And to put your faith and hope in God is to put your faith and hope in Jesus. You can't, you can't have one without the other. Number 5, in verse 7, he's the rejected stone. Verse 7, so honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. Masons pick through stones. And, uh, and I imagine Masons, you know, Mike is a Mason now, and I imagine if he's putting stone on a, on a fireplace, he's picking through the stones for the right stone for the fireplace, right? But go back to the foundation. The Masons are picking the perfect cornerstone. And in this text, in this prophecy, it says that the builders rejected the stone that God said is going to be the cornerstone of everything that I'm doing. Now, who are the builders? The builders are the Jews, everyone. They rejected Jesus. More specifically, the Jewish leadership rejected Jesus. Not all Jews, because some of the Jews were following and loving God. And anybody who followed and loved God, God gave them to Jesus. They would follow Jesus. But he is the stone. Jesus is the stone that God is choosing to do what he is doing, but the builders rejected it. To us, Jesus is precious. I mean, he is of most value. But to others, he is to be repudiated and he is to be rejected. He is to be diminished and he is to be disparaged. We come to the one that many have rejected. And let's face it, maybe most of the world will reject him. I don't know. Maybe the most of the world, even that's introduced to him, will reject him. But we have not rejected him. He was rejected by the rich young ruler. Why? Because the demands of the stone were too much. 
The stone said, hey, get rid of everything you have and come and follow me. He said, I'm rich. I can't do that. And he walked away. He rejected the stone. Anybody who hardens their heart to God's voice in creation, anybody who hardens their heart to God's call in their consciences, they will reject Jesus. They will turn away from him. Anybody who suppresses the truth of God that's revealed to all of us, they will turn away from Jesus and they will reject him. They will not seek him. They will not follow him. They will not belong to him. Number six in verse eight, he's a stumbling stone. He's not just a rejected stone. He's a stumbling stone. In verse 8, it says, And a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. Some people reject Jesus right out. Other people, they don't reject him. They stumble over him because he doesn't fit the bill of what they think God ought to be. Here's what Paul says. And Paul and Peter agree. Are you surprised by that? Paul and Peter always agree because they're writing in the same Bible by the same God. And here's what Paul said. He said, for the Jews, chapter 1 of his letter to, to the church at Corinth, he said, for the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Jesus crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Here's what Paul says. They stumbled. The Jews stumbled over Messiah because they said, there's no way that this weak, suffering, conquered Messiah can be our Messiah because our Messiah is going to conquer Rome. Our Messiah is going to overtake the world. There's no way Jesus can be it because they deny the word of God. They deny what God has said all along. Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 53 and other places. To them, it was foolish that Messiah would suffer and die. To the Gentiles, they said, it is absolutely ludicrous to think that God, that the transcendent God who could speak everything that we see into existence, who could make the universe, whether it was in a big bang or however he did it, he did it by his spoken word. It's ludicrous to think that a transcendent being like that would be willing to become a human frail creature like us and then submit himself to the death that we brought on ourselves. I mean, isn't that ludicrous? The Gentiles said there's no way God would do that. And they stumble over Jesus because they don't believe the word of God. Jesus doesn't fit what they think Messiah ought to be. And so they stumble over him. Jesus can't be it. Jesus can't be it. Some believe Peter is, okay, Peter at the end says they, uh, they will stumble over it because they're destined to stumble over this. Some believe Peter is saying God predestines some people to stumble. God determines that they will stumble. I don't believe that's what this means. I don't believe this means that God has determined people to stumble. I believe that God means that if you reject the word of God, he's, he's determined that you will stumble. If you reject his word, if you don't believe his word, you are predestined to stumble. And that brings me to my seventh and last point. And I hesitated to put this one in here because Peter doesn't specifically say this. Everything I've said said to you so far, Peter says. But I'm going to bring one more in and I'm going to bring it in because Jesus says it, not Peter. But Jesus is the crushing stone. In Matthew's gospel, Peter, Jesus, excuse me, quotes the same passage that Peter is alluding to. In Matthew 21, verse 42, listen to our Savior. Jesus said, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? 
This came from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. He's talking to the Jews and given to a nation producing its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will grind to powder. So make no mistake, everybody, and I know I'm preaching to the choir. I know I'm speaking to people who are already followers of Jesus. At least I'm hoping you all are. But make no mistake, God is love. God desires to give you life. God desires for you to be a part of his kingdom. God desires for you to have an eternity with him. That's what God desires. But make no mistake, God says that if you reject him, if you stumble over him because you're not willing to believe what God has revealed about himself, if you're not willing to look at creation, if you're not willing to listen to your conscience and you harden your heart to God and you suppress the truth of God, listen, God says he will grind you to powder. He will destroy you. He will take your life. You will be no more. Jesus is the cornerstone of all that God is doing. He is an honored stone to his people. He's a living and chosen stone to those who follow him. To us who follow him, to those who don't follow him, he's, he's a rejected person, a rejected stone. People stumble over him, but he will be a stone of judgment to them who grinds them into powder. Now, I tell you, I don't know about y'all, but all week as I've thought about Jesus uh, like this, it's just encouraged me and blessed me. But man, now we get to the second part. And I know you're thinking, oh my goodness, he's got a second part. Yeah, we do. But, but, but I'm telling you, hopefully this is going to be so encouraging to you. And, and God, help us with the children that they'll just be listening. Here we go. Here's who you are. That's who you come to, right? That's who Jesus is to us. But this is who you are in Jesus. Look at what Peter says. First of all, he says, we are living stones. You go back to the beginning of the verses we're reading. We are living stones. We're a chip off the true stone. That is Jesus. And we are living stones. We are like him, alive in him. Though we were dead in our sins, Every one of us heading to the grave. Now we've been made alive in Christ because we shall live again. Here's what Jesus said to Martha. He says, the one who believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. Even everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? The operative word is living. In Christ, we've been made alive. Here's Paul agreeing with Peter again, all right? Here's what he says. Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, which he loved you, and he loved me. This great love with which he loved us. Even we, when we were dead in our transgressions, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I, I think verse 7 is not just talking about the day he raises us from the dead. I think it's talking about all eternity being with the Lord in his kingdom. I mean, that's the grace and kindness towards us through the ages to come. 1 Corinthians, Paul writes again, chapter 15, For just as in Adam all die, so also in Jesus all will be made alive. But each one in his own order, Messiah, the firstfruits, afterward, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Jesus is the living stone, but listen, we're living stones too. As he lives, we shall live. We live, we are alive in him, and we shall live in him forever. 
Number two, we're a spiritual house. And by this, Peter means that we are a temple to God. We are the dwelling place of Almighty God. We are the living stones. This is so cool. We are the living stones that are being fashioned into a spiritual temple, into a spiritual house in which God's presence dwells. Man, this is so good. Follow along. In the Old Covenant, God made a nation. He, he made them. He brought them to Mount Sinai. They were Jews and they were um, Egyptians. They were Jews and Gentiles, though most of them were Jews. He brought them together, together and he coveted them, coveted them together as a nation. And he said, I'm forming my nation, the nation of Israel. And he built a dwelling place for his presence in, in Israel. It was a stone temple. And he says, this is where my, this is where my presence is going to dwell. And, and so when Jesus came, to the temple. Remember, he said, this is my father's house because this is where the spirit of God dwells. But he said, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. And in AD 70, God using the Roman army destroyed the temple. Not one stone, Jesus said, would be left upon another. And this temple was destroyed. But God didn't care about that. I'll tell you why. Because God already was planning on building. He was already building his new temple. We are his new temple. We are his spiritual house. We are his dwelling place. So when Jesus said, I think, when he said, I'm going to destroy this temple and in three days I'm going to raise it back up, I think he wasn't necessarily just talking about his own resurrection. I think he was talking about raising us up as the temple of God. He destroyed the old temple and brought forth the new temple that is us. And the apostle Paul, he concurs with Peter. Follow this, follow this. 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you, plural, you, not just Richard Cram, singular is the temple of God. You, this all, it's no singular here, it's all plural. You are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy and that is what you, plural, are. We are the temple of God. We're the spiritual dwelling that Peter says God is building up together into his temple. We're the living stones that make up the walls of the temple. Don't get confused with the metaphor. We're not a real building. We're people, but we are the dwelling place of Almighty God. God is dwelling in all of you and in me, all of us together. We are the temple of God. Man, that is so good, isn't it? Y'all are not getting excited, though. Uh, we are God's temple. God dwells in us. Now let's drop down to the second half of the text, okay? In verses 9 and 10. I haven't read these verses yet to you, so if you want to follow along, look. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. You, have not you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now those verses, if you back up just a little bit, they're written in response to the people who reject Jesus. They, they're written in response to the people who stumble over Jesus. In contrast to them, this is who you are. So let's look at them. So I've already given you two. He says we're living stones. He says we're a dwelling place for God. And then he says now we are a chosen race. That's something that God said to Israel years ago. 
Now he's saying it to God's true Israel, who is both Jews and Gentiles. We are a chosen race. Now the word race there, everyone, listen, it is, a, it is a word that means people related by biology, okay? The word race refers to a large group of people who are biologically, biologically regarded as being related to one another. And that is us. You say, how? Because we have been born again into a new family, and we share the same father, and we are one race. We are God's chosen race. When Jesus was told that his parents or his mom and his brothers and sisters were outside, y'all remember this story? You remember what he said, don't you? He said, Who's my mom? Who's my brothers and my sisters? You are my brothers and my sisters. You are my mother. Anyone who does the will of the Father. We are God's family. We are God's chosen race of people. And that is so cool. And you know, in Matthew 28, where Jesus sends us out, remember he sends us out to Pantata Ethne? Remember what that means, right? He's sending us out to all the ethnic groups of the world. It doesn't matter. Red, yellow, brown, black, white. doesn't matter whether your eyes are big and round or slanted. It doesn't matter whether, doesn't matter what corner of the world you come from. If you are in faith in Jesus, then you are family. You are brother and sister. It's such a shame. It's such a shame that we all look alike here today when in our county we don't all look alike. You know, I'm just lamenting. I don't know what to do about it. I know there's nothing we can do about it. I'm sorry, Audrey, you look a little bit different than me. But it's, it's, just, it's, it's just a shame that we all basically look the same. It's just a shame. Somehow or another, the body of Christ has to break down all these racial and ethnic differences because we're family. We're family. That's what he says here. We are a chosen, this large group by biology, God's chosen people. Number four. We, we are a royal priesthood. I love this one. I've already talked about this a little bit. The job of the priesthood was to offer sacrifices to God. You remember in the Old Testament, right? They would take the lambs and they would, they would sacrifice them as worship to God. The, the, the lamb, especially once a year, would represent them dying and, uh, and God putting their sin on them so that he would give them life again one day. That's what it represented. When Jesus died, there is no more need for uh, any more sacrifices, none whatsoever, no more sacrifices. And so the book of Hebrews says we don't do that anymore. Jesus sat down, offered his blood as the final one, only sacrifices, only one sacrifice, okay? And so we don't offer sacrifice anymore, but, but we're still called the priests. That's what they were. And by the way, in the, new, in the old covenant, there was only one group of people who were priests. The Levites were priests, right? In this new kingdom that God is building, in this new temple, we are all priests to God. There's not just a few, not just some of us, not just some of us gifted this way. We're all priests to God. You don't, I'm not your priest and you don't need any priest to go to God. You can bow your head and you can end up in the presence of God 
yourself right now. And you don't need anybody to go between you and God because Jesus already went between you and God. And yet the Bible says we're still a priesthood. Why are we a priesthood? Because we represent God to the world. We represent God to everybody else. And we have access to God. And the scripture, Peter says it, it says it twice, that we are to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Verse 5, go back to verse 5. You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built into a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now twice Peter's going to say that, right? What, we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore, but what are spiritual sacrifices? Did you know the Bible tells us? The Bible tells us. Here they are. You, as a priest to God, are to offer your body a living sacrifice, Romans 12. You, as a follower of Jesus, are to offer your praise to God as a sacrifice, Hebrews 13, 15. You are to offer your good works to God, Hebrews 13, 16, as a sacrifice. You are to offer generous giving to God, Hebrews 13, 16, as a sacrifice to your God. You are to offer your converts to God, Romans 15, 16. That means the people that I lead to Christ... They are offerings that I sacrifice to God, that I give. They're spiritual sacrifices to God. As I, as I represent Jesus to people all around us, I'm offering that to God. I'm to offer my love as a sacrifice, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. I'm to offer my prayers as a sacrifice to God, Revelation 8, 3 and 4. Look them up. In every place it says these are the sacrifices that you and I are to offer to God as a royal priesthood to, to him. I, I think I tell, told you this already. I hate to repeat myself, but you know, you've heard the term of the priesthood of the believer, right? Did I mention that already? We, you know, we, the priesthood of the believer is a Baptist distinctive. It's one we've held to forever and ever. It was one of those things Baptists were big on, and that meant that I did, we don't need anybody to mediate between us and God. We are a priest to our God. Number five, we are a holy nation. There's only six, or I'm almost finished, so just hang tight, just a little bit more. We are not just family, but we are a nation. We, we are more specifically the kingdom of God. We are God's kingdom, not just family. We are family. I don't know which is better, to be a nation or to be family. But we're like the Jews were supposed to be. They were supposed to be a family and a nation, right, that followed God. They really weren't. We are a family and a nation. And those of us who follow Jesus, we're, you know, we belong to this kingdom where Jesus is our king. And he's our Lord. He has territory. And he's in charge. And we're his subjects. It's really hard to imagine one day when Jesus will rule the world physically, isn't it? I mean, it is for me. It's hard for me to imagine a day when all the world is ruled by Jesus. And, and not only is he ruled by Jesus, but he'll be ruling and we'll enjoy all the fruits of God making everything new. Everything new. And none of you will be selfish anymore. And I won't be selfish anymore. And none of you, none of you will be broken by sin. You're not going to be broken by the hurts of your childhood or the hurts of your adulthood that actually have lingering effects today. None of that. All that will be restored, and, and, and we'll be living together, and it won't just be for a season. We won't, hang, we won't have it hanging over us. When, when is my death coming? Am I going to live to a ripe old age? Or No, because we'll be made immortal, and we're going to live with God forever. I want you to picture something with me for just a moment. I want you to picture a cool evening outside, but inside it's kind of warm, 
There's 20 good friends sitting around a table enjoying a good meal. And they're chatting and they're laughing and, and they're chatting with each other, chatting across the table, chatting with the person beside them. And there's laughter and there's no fear and there's no sorrow and there's just joy and there's peace and there's happiness. Well, that's what was happening in my house last Wednesday night as part of the church got together and uh, shared a meal and, and we loved on Jesus together. Now, I want you to picture that all over the world, all the time, good friends getting together, loving Jesus together. I mean, maybe, it doesn't, maybe it's not a cool night. I don't know. Maybe there's going to be seasons in the new kingdom. I don't know why there wouldn't be seasons in, in the new age, right? But maybe during the warm seasons, we're all sitting outside, you know, we've got the, what do you call it, the lanterns out, and, and we're just all enjoying each other and life that's the promise. That's the kingdom. And we're a part of that kingdom forever and ever and ever. I mean, it's incredible. And then the last thing, we are God's people, God's possession. That's what God calls us. We belong to him. Let me read it. You are, verse 9, a people for his possession. I already read this once. A people for his possession so that you, maybe I haven't read this, uh, you are a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We, the people, Jews and Gentiles, who have put our faith in Jesus, we are the people of God, he says. Peter reminds us that we weren't the people of God at one point, but we are the people of God now. God took the vineyard from Israel. You know, I'm not trying to get into what's going to happen in the future, but God took the vineyard from Israel. That's what Jesus told him. He said, he's going to take the vineyard from you. He's going to give it to those who bring forth the fruit of it. And he created a new nation, a new people, a people that he calls his own. Hosea promised this in the Old Testament. Paul reiterates it to the church at Rome, and Peter picks up on it as well. Let me read you Paul, because Paul and Peter agree, because they're writing for the same God in the same book. And here's what Paul would say to the church at Rome. He says, and what if he did this, God did this, to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And it also says in Hosea, I will call not my people, my people, and she who is unloved, I will call beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people, that is in Israel, there they will be called the sons of the living God. Once we were not, we were not noted as God's people. The covenant that God made was with the nation of Israel, and you had to join the nation of Israel to be in that covenant people. Today, we are, under the new covenant, the people of God. He has joined us together, his people, his possession a holy nation, a chosen race, a chosen people. Hosea said, and Paul repeated it, Peter said it, God showed mercy on all of us. He called us out of darkness and into his marvelous kingdom. And that, beloved, is who you are. 
That is your identity in Christ. You and I are living stones. And we're being built up into this temple for God. He's going to come and inhabit us one day. Where he inhabits us already, excuse me, by his spirit. But Jesus is coming back to inhabit with us one day. We've been united as a family, brought together as a special nation. We are a kingdom of priests joined together to give sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices to our God and proclaim his praise. We are God's possession. We are God's people. Yeah. Amen. Let me just ask you, do you need to come to the stone this morning? Seriously. I mean, I look around you and I, I know I, I don't really see any guests, maybe a few, but do you need to come to the stone? And I'm talking to all of us too, you know, because, you know, we can, we can pretend and be something that we're not. We can stumble over Jesus for all kinds of reasons. Have you stumbled over him, but today would like to come to Jesus the stone? I mean, you can. You come to Jesus by faith, everyone. You, you don't come by getting, cleaning up your act. You don't, come by, you don't come by joining a church. You don't come. By, you, you come because in faith, you come to him, the choice cornerstone, the precious stone that God chose to build everything upon. And you come to him and he makes you his possession. He makes you his people. He gives you a new heart. Did anybody need to come to the stone this morning? Then just do that right now, where you sit. Come to him. Come to Jesus. The rest of us, let's go forth this week and be the people of God. Let's go forth this week and live differently, act differently. Let may people just note that we belong to Jesus, that there's something different about us because we've come to him. Let's pray. Father, I never know how to end these things. I feel, like, I feel like we should sing. I feel like we should do something, Lord, to end this talk. Thank you, Jesus, for being the stone, the, the rock of refuge for us. Thank you for being all the things that, that Peter and Paul say that you are, Lord. And thank you for our identity in Christ now. Thank you because of who we've come, the temple of God, living, living stones alive forevermore because of Jesus. Lord, thank you for all that you've done for us. May we leave this parking lot and our gathering. May the, may the church of Jesus, the temple of God, as we disperse, may we go forth and be living stones amongst our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Mm-hmm.